turn to Colossians chapter 3 again. Colossians 3, 15. I'm going to just read three verses, 15, 16, and 17. <clears throat> and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And we thank you for this new year. We thank you for how fitting this passage is for us in the new year. And I just pray you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you'd fill me with your Spirit to speak your word, and that you'd fill us all, Lord, to hear your word, and that you'd change us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we come now to this serious business of preaching the Word of God, preaching the Word of God. You know, the great task of preaching God's Word is to take what God has actually said in His Word and to faithfully communicate that to others, not taking away from it, not adding to it, and not avoiding that which is controversial. And if we preach the Word correctly... And I'm not just talking about myself. We, Christians, if we preach the word correctly, then when we speak, it should be like hearing from God himself. If we truly are communicating his word. And so that makes preaching a very serious thing, right? And listening to preaching a very serious thing. And I think when we lose the sense of hearing from God when we hear the word being preached, or when we open our Bibles, you know, when you open your Bible at night, or in the morning, or when you listen to a brother or sister share the word with you, if we lose the sense that God is actually speaking to us, if the word is faithfully communicated, then it's not really going to change us. It's not really going to affect us because it's just Eli speaking or Alan speaking or Brad speaking and it's not God speaking. So one challenge for us in the new year, and I know this is a challenge for me, is whenever I open the word of God to read it for myself or when somebody shares it or when I share it, Let's have ears to hear from God. And let's be changed by what he has to say. So it's not just me speaking or anyone else, but it's actually God, him speaking. Last year we spoke, we have been speaking a lot about God's grace. We've been looking at Ephesians, Colossians, and we intend to keep doing that in 2011. We're going to look and see and learn and hear more about God's amazing grace. And I hope you've seen by now, the place that grace has in the scriptures. Do you notice that? Or do you, do you sort of feel like this whole grace thing, we're kind of missing the point? That, you know, we talk a lot about grace, but there's got to be some other thing that's more important than that to talk about. Or I, I hope that you've seen by now the very important place that grace has in the scriptures. Because grace is... The, the ultimate revelation of who God is. The Bible says that nobody knows who God is 
except the Son. Nobody has ever seen God except the Son. And the Son reveals the Father to us. And the Son came to us full of grace and truth. And so to really, to miss grace is to really miss everything. Just so you know. And to not get that is really to not get anything. Now the church, we're supposed to be the light to the world. And as we sung, shine Jesus, shine, fill the land with the Father's glory. But notice the song also said, shine on me. The church is called to know God and to make God known. And did you know that only the church knows God and only the church can make God known in the world? Isn't that amazing? It's kind of frightening, actually. And if you're a Christian, you're part of that. So you are the only one, if you're a Christian, we Christians are the only ones who know God. Kind of a shocking It's not the Muslim or the Mormon or anyone else but the Christian who knows God and can actually make him known in the world. And this is the church's highest calling, is to, is to make God known in the world, to be the light in the world. And it's because we're the only ones who have actually known who God is. We have experienced his grace and experienced his mercy. We've come to God as sinners, not proving ourselves to him, not earning our stripes with God, but coming empty-handed to God, and, and we've realized God is a gracious and merciful God who saves sinners. And so we know who he is, and so we can tell others about him as well. Now Paul, in Colossians, there's a lot going on here in Colossians, and in our passage, Paul's touching upon this, knowing God and making God known. You see, the church at, Col- at Colossae, they were a young church, young Christians, but they knew God. And the Bible calls churches candlesticks. Remember that in Revelation, how it calls churches candlesticks? What does a candlestick do? Yeah, it shines light in a dark place. We don't need candlesticks when, there's no, when everything is full of light, right? So the reason why a church is called a candlestick is because the world is in darkness, as also the Bible says. And a church, every church, every community of Christians, is like a little candlestick in a dark world. Do you believe that this community of Christians here in Cache Valley is like a candlestick in this dark valley? The sun is shining, doesn't seem very dark, but spiritually it's a very dark place. And the knowledge of God is only here amongst us in this little valley among the Christians. And the church at Colossae was being threatened with having their light extinguished. There was false teachers who had come in the wake of the apostles or the true gospel as it was being spread throughout the world. Now we're in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And we have a little church in Colossae that's being threatened with extinction because these false teachers come along and they don't flatly deny Jesus. They don't flatly come out and say, Jesus Christ isn't the Messiah. They don't flatly come out and say he didn't die on the cross, he didn't rise from the dead. They believe all those things. But what they say is this. These false teachers came along and said, you know, to believe in Jesus is wonderful. He is the promised Messiah. He does fulfill all the prophecies. Yes, but it's not enough simply to believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. It's not enough. The false teachers are saying yes, you have to believe but you also have to. And in Colossae, And in Galatia, they were saying, you also have to be circumcised and keep the law. That was the issue that they were dealing with then. 
Today, it's a different issue. It doesn't have to be circumcision. It could be anything. But anyone who says that Jesus Christ isn't enough, that what he did on the cross isn't sufficient for, for you, that you could just trust in what he did and you are right with God and forgiven, saved and have eternal life, if they come and they say it's not enough, then they're a false teacher in the same vein as the false teachers here at Colossae. And so Paul wants them to be strengthened in their faith and in their witness. Two things. And I want to focus on this today, this morning. Two things that Paul wants them to be strengthened in. In their faith and also in their witness. So Christianity, the Christian church, is not merely to be strong defensively, but also offensively. Now, how many of you have ever played on a, on a sports team before? Okay. Now, some sports, there's exceptions, right? Because some sports are a little strange, like curling in Canada. But many sports have both an offense and a defense, right? Now, I played at soccer growing up, and I knew that whenever I was on a team that had a only strong in one area, I wasn't, I wasn't on a very good team. So if my team was strong offensively, Sure, as long as we had the ball and we were up there, we could score some goals. But because we're so weak defensively, they're going to score so many goals against us that we're going to lose. Or, if we had a strong defensive team, it would do us any good because, sure, we could stop them from scoring, but we weren't going to score any goals ourselves. And so, we weren't going to win the game. And it's the same with an army, too. An army isn't going to win any battles if it just has a strong defense. But an army must also have a strong offense in order to win the battle. And the church also is supposed to be not only strong defensively, that means we're not only supposed to be strong against heresies and strong against false doctrines so that when false teachers come to the church to extinguish our light, we can say, no, that's not the gospel. And that's important. But if that's all we have, then we're not actually going to win the war. If that's all we have, then we're not actually fulfilling our calling to know Christ and to make him known in the earth. A candle, right, is a delicate thing. You want to protect the candle so that the light doesn't go out, right? Because the wind could come or some, someone could step on it or whatever, right? But is that the whole purpose of a candle? Is The only reason we light a candle and put it on a candlestick is just so we can start protecting it? Is that the only reason? <laughs> we light it so that it brings light. So there's two purposes, or there's two things that need to be in place with our candlestick, with our church, and with the Colossian church, and with every church, and with every Christian. You need to be protected. You need to be strong defensively. But you also need to be shining light and on the offensive as well. So earlier in the letter, Paul has already dealt with the doctrine of all this. So the Judaizers, or the false teachers, were coming and they were saying, it's not enough to believe in Christ. Paul has already dealt with that doctrinally. He's shown how Christ is sufficient. And we've looked at that already. He's shown in that what, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us is enough for, for you. It's enough for you. He sums it all up in Colossians 2.10 by saying, you are complete in him. But now Paul turns to the practical and this morning, the text we read, we're just jumping right into the midst of the practical section of the epistle. Paul's been speaking practically, but not only doctrine, but also practical Christianity, okay? Your practical Christian life, how you actually live your life as a Christian, is vital when it comes to your defense 
and also your offense. Do you believe that? It's not just enough to have solid doctrine, although that's very important. But our doctrine is to change our life. And as our life is changed, then it, it serves both to help us to defend ourselves against false teaching and also to shine the light as a witness for Christ in our world. And so this is what I want to talk about. So how does practical Christianity strengthen us defensively and offensively? Well, first of all, practical Christianity is like positive proof in your life of the truthfulness of the gospel. It's positive proof of the truthfulness of the gospel. It's not the only proof. You can come to know the gospel is true without having your life changed, but as your life is changed by the gospel, it confirms what the gospel says would happen in your life. It confirms that. Do you notice how the Bible talks about how love strengthens us and love fortifies us? Love keeps us from falling? In Colossians 2, we looked at this before, in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul prays that their hearts might be fortified, being knit together in love. As we love one another, just simply through believing the simple gospel, as that produces love in our life, then when a false teacher comes along and says, it's not enough, we say, well, you know, I don't need anything more. I mean, we do love each other. And this love that we have for one another is positive proof of the sufficiency of the gospel. So we've seen it in Colossians, but turn to Second Peter. I just want to show you another person besides Paul who points out that practical Christianity strengthens us defensively and confirms the truth of the gospel. In Second Peter chapter 1, do you remember when Peter says, add to your faith virtue? He says, add to your faith virtue, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says, besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now he's saying, let's get practical. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness. And then here's the, the cherry on top. To brotherly kindness love. And then verse 8, notice. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. You shall never fall if you do these things. It simply means that you have been keeping your eyes on the fact that your old sins have been purged. He says here, if you're not going practically as a Christian, do you know what it means? You've forgotten the simple gospel. You've forgotten that you're forgiven. You've forgotten that all your sins have been purged by Jesus and his blood. You're not focusing on that. You're blind. You're not seeing it. But as we we grow practically, it's just simply the evidence that we're seeing the gospel and will not fall. But notice he says, be diligent to do this. So it's not something that happens automatically. 
So practical Christianity is important for us defense we don't fall. Let's keep our eyes on the gospel and be diligent to grow. Be diligent to keep our eyes there and grow practically with love and virtue. I know in my own life that when I set my mind on things above, when I see the cross, or when I survey the wondrous cross, all of a sudden, and you can probably also agree with me and attest to this, that the moment you see that Christ loved you and gave himself for you and you're forgiven, you don't have to even strive. All of a sudden, you just start loving people. You just start, you just have a patience that you didn't have. You just have a love for people that you didn't have before, right? And that is an encouragement to me because it tells me, oh yes, this is true. It really works. The Bible says that love will come from seeing the cross, and it does. And I'm seeing it. It's positive proof, evidence that this is happening. And it strengthens me in my faith every time. And even when I'm not seeing, even when I'm not loving very much, it still is encouraging to me because I say, oh, you know why I'm not loving? It's because I'm not seeing the gospel very clearly. And it encourages me and strengthens me in my faith. And if a false teacher comes along and says, it's not enough just to see the gospel. Grace isn't enough to change your life. You need to have rules and laws. I, I, I know by experience that's not true. <laughs> you see? My own life has proved the doctrines. Secondly, offensively, how does practical Christianity strengthen us offensively in our witness to the world? I think it should be very straightforward and evident, right? If all we have is words to tell people, if we tell people that we are sinners and Christ died for us, I'm, I don't believe for a minute that that's not sufficient. A person can come to Christ by simply believing the simple message of the gospel. For many people, they stumble, don't they? Because for many people, they look at the church and they look at Christians and unfortunately, and they shouldn't do this, they should just see the message that we're sinners and we're saved by grace and Christ died and rose again, but they stumble when they see Christians not loving one another. And so they, they don't consider what we're saying until they see a difference in our lives. So how practical Christianity strengthens us offensively as a witness and here in the valley is when the, when the lost, when the unbelievers see that there's a difference in our life, Wow, these people have an assurance of eternal life. Just recently, I witnessed to one of my friends, one of my oldest friends, and he became a Christian through our conversation that we had. And one thing that struck him was he noticed that I had an assurance of eternal life. And he was afraid of dying. He didn't have that assurance. And all I was telling him was, look, I said, Ryland, my assurance is not rooted upon my performance and how good I am. My assurance is simply rooted in what Jesus Christ did for me. And because it's rooted in what he did for me on the cross, I can have assurance. If it was on me, I would never have assurance, right? And he was just blown away by that, that, that peace and the assurance that I had just through simply believing this message. Like, it really brings assurance. What if we stood up and said, if you just trust in Jesus, you'll have an assurance of eternal life. And then they look at us and we're totally afraid of dying. <laughs> now, the message is true. 
but they're not going to consider that. Or also if we say, you know, and not only does grace save us, but grace actually changes our life too. It actually, it stimulates us and causes us to love each other. And then they look at us, we just said that. Let's say somebody comes to All Saints for the first time and they hear me say this over the stand. (laughs) And they hear me say, that grace actually causes us to love one another. And then the moment of the book, we get in a big fight. And we don't love, we get bitter, and we don't even forgive, and someone doesn't come back next week. And, you know, well, so much for that. They're not going to consider. But Jesus said they, that they'll know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So until we are actually not only doctrinally strong, but also practically living out the truthfulness of the gospel, practically living a life of love for one another, then the world isn't going to consider us very seriously. Some will, thankfully. But God is calling us to be candlesticks that shine brightly, and that it involves both a good offense and a good defense if we're going to win this battle. Amen? Let's look at the text now. There's some beautiful th- This is one of the most beautiful passages in our Bibles. Colossians 3:15 to 17. Let's see. We're going to just look at these three verses, three very practical exhortations that the apostle Paul has for us as Christians. Let us see how we can strengthen our offense and our defense here. So in verse 15, it says, "And let the peace of God rule in your hearts." So the "and" connects it with everything that's gone before. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about personal or interpersonal relationships between man and man. Okay? So if you'll notice before, he says, put on mercy and kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbear with one another, forgive one another. If any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also you do. And then afterwards, he talks about, in verse 18 and 19 and on, Uh, Family relationships, wives, husbands, children, and also servants and masters. So in the context, we're talking about relationships between brothers and sisters, man and man, woman to woman, man to woman. This is what we're talking about. How grace affects our relationships with other people. And the peace of God, actually... The best Greek manuscripts we have, it's actually should be translated the peace of Christ, and that's very important. So, and most of the modern translations will say the peace of Christ. So, what it says here is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and it's in the, it's it's touching personal relationships with people. Okay, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, there's a difference between the peace of Christ, what he's talking about here, and the peace of God. What he talks about in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, The peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The Bible does talk about a calmness of mind, a peacefulness of mind that we can have as we're trusting God, like, this, like that hymn says. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised perfect peace and rest, right? If we stay ourselves upon God and his truth and and his faithfulness and who he is, we will have peace in our mind. But this peace that Paul's talking about here in Colossians isn't that kind of peace. Paul's not talking about a 
a calm peacefulness of mind here. So what is he talking about when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts? He's talking about the peace that Christ brings in relationship with one another. Turn with me to, to Ephesians chapter 2. You'll see what he's saying. This is the parallel passage to this verse. The peace of Christ. Let it rule in your hearts. Because Paul just said, this is what you've been called to in one body. Notice. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you've been called in one body. So he's saying you've been called in one body with all the saints in one body and you've been called to peace with one another. This is what you've been called to. And you'll see as we read Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13, I want you to notice how Christ is our peace and how he uses here the expression one body many times. He's got the same thing in his mind because remember Paul wrote this about the same time. He's just elaborating more in Ephesians. So notice in Ephesians 2.13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometime far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. This passage should come to your mind every time you have a quarrel with somebody. This is exactly what he's talking about in Colossians 3.15. He's saying, you've been called into one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you've been called in one body. The peace of Christ is this, that you and you and you and me all relate now differently to God and to one another. We have peace with God and peace with each other because we all are reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ and not by our own works and by our own performance. We now relate to each other differently because we relate to God differently. This is, this is how our relationships will change. So let's say somebody comes and sins against you one day, a Christian, because that does happen. Let's say a Christian sins against you one day. And all you need to do is let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Did you know that the word rule means umpire, literally in the Greek? Let it umpire. An umpire is one who settles disputes. An umpire is a third party that steps in and makes a decision because the other two people can't make a decision. That's what an umpire does. And it's literally the word. Let the peace of Christ umpire. Could you imagine if the peace of Christ umpired in our homes? If it was the umpire? And suddenly the situation and the umpire says, peace of Christ. <laughs> You're both reconciled to God in one body. 
You're both reconciled to God in one body. The commandment and dogma is gone. Let the peace of Christ umpire in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ have the final say. Let the peace of Christ solve all the stalemates. Umpires come in to solve stalemates. You don't know what to do? Do what the peace of Christ tells you to do. Are you wondering whether you should get angry or forgive? Let the peace of Christ umpire. Hey, did you know that that guy totally relates to God by the blood of Jesus and not on his performance? And so do you. Did you know that you sinned against God and he forgave you? And he forgave him too. Let the peace of Christ umpire. <laughs> That's what we've been called to in one body. That's why we're now together in the church together. In the church. As the world looks at the church, they should look in at, these people are peaceful with each other. This is what God is saying. whenever we get angry we're not letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts we're umpiring our own lives I think it's just such a beautiful thing to see that God has called us to peace God has called us as a, as a community to live with peaceful relationships with one another and in Ephesians chapter 4, if you remember, when, when Paul finally finishes talking about all the doctrine of the blessings that we have in Christ, now he says, walk suitably according to the gospel. And the first thing he talks about is unity and peace amongst Christians, right? Unity and peace. That's, the, that's like the number one thing. That's the first thing. If you could do anything consistent... It wouldn't be putting money into the box at church, and it wouldn't be reading your Bible... It would be having unity and peace amongst Christians because you've been accepted and received by grace and they have been accepted and received by grace. That's the most consistent thing we can possibly do. And I believe the most important thing is to walk in peace with one another. So this is what Paul is saying. This is what God is saying through Paul. Let the peace of Christ umpire in your life, to which also you are called in one body. So, if you've been umpiring your life, it's time to retire. It's time to let another umpire come in. The new umpire. The Prince of Peace. Yes. I remember reading of a Palestinian Christian. He was a Muslim, formerly and he hated Jews. He hated them. And when he became a Christian, he was invited to a, a prayer meeting at a Jewish person's home, a Jewish Christian. And he went with much trepidation because he wasn't sure what would happen. Because he used to hate Jews and he thought all Jews hated Arabs, Palestinians. So he came and he realized, when, the first thing he came, the, the Jewish person gave him a big hug. And he was shocked. He's never been hugged by a Jew in his life. And he, in his book, wrote that he wants the whole world to know that that would never happen except through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ brought peace to the Palestinian and the Jew. 
They became brothers because they stopped thinking about the sins that they've all committed. There's healing and forgiveness there because, you know, in, in relationships, sometimes there's real sins. Well, often there are, right? Real historical hurts. And unless you forgive, then there's never going to be peace. But Jesus can bring healing and forgiveness and peace to the oldest hurts and the oldest wounds and the deepest stains. He can do it. And he does it through what he did on the cross and for teaching us to let that which he did on the cross rule in our hearts. The next thing Paul says in verse 15, he says, be thankful. And thankfulness also affects our relationships with others. Because as we are thankful to God for what he's done for us in Christ Jesus, and remember, when we start thinking about that, we know that he did that by grace, and it wasn't because of who we were. So when we walk in thankfulness to God, every single day thanking God, thank you God that you died for me and that you've forgiven me of all my sins, even though I don't deserve it that brings about a difference in our personal relationships with others as well. I just challenge you. Be thankful. As he says, this is a simple instruction, isn't it? Be thankful. I challenge you. Be thankful and you will find your relationships with others is different. Just by being thankful. And another thing I thought of, which is very powerful to me, is that there's never a moment when we cannot be thankful. Isn't that amazing? There's never a moment when we cannot be thankful. That sounds very simple, but the more I thought about it, the more profound that is. Never a moment. We could be thankful at every moment if we just would remember. Let's look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is the word of Christ? The word of Christ can be taken in two senses. It could be the word of Christ, the word that Christ speaks, his word, or the word about Christ, the word concerning Christ that the apostles preach, that Christians speak of. But whichever sense you take it, whether it be Christ's word, and that's singular, it doesn't say let the words of Christ like as if Paul was just saying, get the red letters in you. He's not saying that. <laughs> Let the word of Christ, that which Christ has to say, like in Hebrews chapter 1, God has spoken to us through his son. That message, that specific message that Christ has spoken. Or that specific message concerning Christ. You know, whichever sense you take it, there's one thing it's talking about, the gospel. The gospel. The word of Christ is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that there is a righteousness that you can have apart from the law through faith in what he did for you on the cross. So let this message of the righteousness of God through faith apart from law dwell in you richly is what he's saying here. And that wonderful let the gospel dwell in you richly. The truth, the message, the word of the righteousness through faith in Jesus dwell in you richly. And to dwell in you, it denotes settling down and permanently residing within your heart. 
So it's not just a cerebral thing, although it is very much a cerebral thing. The mind is the avenue to your heart, but it's not just this thing that's in your thoughts, but it's in you. It's dwelling in you. It's taking over your inward parts. This message of the righteousness of faith. Let it dwell in you richly. And I, I love this word rich. Do you notice how the word rich continually comes up? It's like everything about Christianity is rich. And we're not talking about m- money. We're talking about spiritually rich. Quality and quantity in the spirit. Everything about Christianity is rich. Christianity is a stingy religion. It's, it's rich like that rich cake we had at the Shelkies the other day. It's more rich than that spiritually. It's not like a bland meal. God is rich in wisdom. For example, God is rich in wisdom. That means he has wisdom so vast it can't be measured. God isn't just a little wise or even a lot wise. He's so wise you cannot measure how wise God is. He's rich in grace. Just like his wisdom, you cannot fathom how great God's grace is. And not just the, quali- the quantity of it, but the quality of it as well. It's rich. He's rich in glory. That means when you think of God and you go, wow. I mean, that's just not enough. That wow isn't enough. His glory is so vast and unfathomable. It will take all eternity to just worship him. But Christians are to experience a rich life. Did you know that? That the Christian life is to be rich, spiritually rich in quality. Remember in Revelation 3.18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy gold that's been refined in the fire that you may be rich. He wants us to be rich. And we are rich. It's not a matter of acquiring riches. A billionaire who doesn't reckon that he's a billionaire will live poorly. He's not living richly in his Christian experience. God is calling us to live rich Christian lives. I'm convinced of this more than ever now. The Christian life, the normal Christian life, you are living a son and a daughter of the King of Kings. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And God wants us to shake off the memory of the old man and to renew our minds and to see the new creation. And stop living like the old man. Stop living like we're, we're still trying to get forgiven. I thought about it this morning, actually. It just hit me. I thought, Alan is sitting at the right hand of God. Like, okay, I don't know what that means. I just know the Bible says it, and that's amazing. Isn't it? Don't you think that's amazing that the Bible says that a Christian is sitting at the right hand of God? And it says not when a Christian has done all these things. Just simply when you believed, your situation in the Spirit was changed. And you are sitting at the right hand of God. That's rich. That's rich. And sadly, Many Christians are like the billionaire who doesn't reckon it so, and we live poorly. 
God wants us to live rich. Let the word of Christ not just dwell in you poorly, but dwell in you richly. Let that message of the gospel and everything that it means be rich in you. The New Testament describes the Christian life as rich in good works, rich in faith, rich towards God. Remember treasures in heaven and treasures rich towards God. All these descriptions that we ought to be as Christians the moment we simply reckon who we are in Jesus. That you're no longer trying to earn God's favor. You're no longer trying to be forgiven. You are just totally sitting at the right hand of God in the favor of God. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And everything is yours. The Bible says that Jesus became poor so that we could be rich. And that's not talking about money. So isn't it a sad thing if Jesus became poor so that we could be rich? Isn't it a sad thing to not reckon ourselves to be rich and to live richly? If that's what he died for. It's like he died so we could have all this money, spiritually speaking, and we don't even use it. So let's not be content with scraps. Let's only be content with what the Bible actually says we have and when we actually see it and live out of it. And when the word of Christ dwells in us richly, it will have a rich outcome. It will have a rich outcome. When it is in you, what is in also comes out. And that's what the next part talks about in our verse, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, the Greek scholars will tell us that in all wisdom belongs to the next part of the verse. So, in all wisdom, teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So, I think one of the first things, or one thing, maybe not the first, but one thing that comes out richly when the word of Christ dwells in us richly, when the message of the righteousness of faith dwells in us richly, it produces a rich crop of edification for the body of Christ. You know who edifies the Christ the most? The one whom the message of the righteousness of faith dwells in them richly. They're the ones who edify the body of Christ the most. I've heard many sermons, many sermons that were not that were not spoken by one whom the word of Christ dwells in richly. And they can be as fiery as anything, but it doesn't edify. In fact, it, I walk away from those sermons with a sour stomach. But when you have someone who knows the gospel and that message, the beautiful message of grace, they edify the body with what they say and what they do. So from that, every single believer, because this is not just for some, but this is for all. If the word of the gospel dwells in you richly, you shall edify the body of Christ. It's just going to come out. It's just going to come out. Because out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And if this is in your heart, then out of your mouth will come forth songs and words of encouragement to edify the body of Christ. This passage tells us that Christians are singing people. And it also gives us some guidelines. It gives us some elements that should be there when we sing. First of all, our singing should be edifying. It should encourage one another. I hope you are encouraged when we sing at All Saints. I hope when we sing these songs that you are encouraged. Some people think that 
any discussion of encouraging other people in our, in our worship is, is carnal and we should only be worshiping God. But this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that our singing is also to encourage and edify one another. Another element of our singing should be doctrinal. In all wisdom, speaking and admonishing to one another, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's doctrinal. It's doctrinally sound. But more than just being doctrinal sound, I believe it's gospel-centric. Because out of this abundance of the word of Christ within, we're singing. And so our singing should be not only encouraging, but encouraging because it's doctrinally sound and it's gospel-centric. Another thing about our singing is it should be diverse. should be diverse. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So it's not restricted to just one thing. When we sing, we should be diverse. Some people, some churches will sing only psalms. You've ever heard of churches like that? The Scottish Presbyterian churches often will sing nothing but psalms. And they think it's sin to sing anything but psalms. In fact, our beloved author that we love, uh, Horatius Bonar, was kind of a controversial figure in his day because he was writing hymns. And in his church, that was seen as pushing the boundaries. <laughs> of course, we've been blessed by his hymns. They're edifying. They're doctrinally sound. They're gospel-centric. We won't go into a full discussion of those words, but the words de- denote diversity. Notice it even has to spiritual songs because the word song there doesn't even mean a a hymn or a psalm it's just any kind of song any kind of song but let it be spiritual and let it be edifying and doctrinally sound it should be full of grace full of grace notice it says singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord and that that can mean thankfulness singing, singing with thankfulness but we're thankful because of God's grace so whichever way you take it it's grace Our singing should be full of the knowledge of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus and a thankful response to his grace also. And number five, another element here is that it should be from the heart. That means it doesn't just come out of your mouth. How many of you have ever sung a Christian song out of your mouth and not out of your heart? Have you ever done that? I've done it. (laughs) Lots of times. (laughs) But it doesn't have that character, that quality, and the elements that it should have when we're simply singing out of our mouths. Probably best not to sing until you can sing out of your heart. And lastly, it should be unto the Lord, as it says at the end, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. So at the same time, it is encouraging to the body. It is also to God to bless his name. God is a God who is blessed by our singing. And now let's just, in closing, look at the last verse, verse 17. Another final practical exhortation for us to strengthen us defensively and offensively. To let our light shine, but yet be protected. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him whatsoever you do. That is, you are an ambassador for Christ, a representative of Jesus in the world. This is talking about letting your light shine now. An ambassador for Christ. 
It's kind of like climbing Mount Everest and sticking a flag at the top in the name of the United States. This time it's in the name of Jesus. Whatever I do, I've got the Jesus, his flag with me and I'm planting it in everything that I do. In word or deed. As ambassadors for Christ. One Bible teacher comments on this verse. He says, We cannot truly glorify God in all our words and deeds if we are not thankful a good point. This isn't just do it out of duty. This is do it in the name of Christ as an ambassador but do it all giving thanks unto God. I think if we are not living a life of thankfulness and we're doing things but not out of thankfulness, then it's really worthless to God. He says also, every mature Christian is thankful and all immature Christians are not thankful. Very simple. So as we grow in maturity, a true maturity is having every area of our life come under the influence of thankfulness. Isn't it amazing that thankfulness can influence every area of our life? Every word and every thought and every deed. It can affect it all. Some people think you need to have more than just thankfulness, more than just the gospel to motivate you, but I don't believe that. So whatever you do, do it all giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. All right, so that's some practical instruction for the new year. Let the peace of Christ fire your lives, brothers and sisters. You are called to that in one body. Let the peace of Christ umpire this new year, 2011. Let the message of the righteousness of faith dwell richly in you and live a rich Christian life that Christ died so that you could have. And whatever you do, do it out of thankfulness as an ambassador. These are practical things that will strengthen us against heresies and also will make our light shine in this world as we go and share the gospel with people. Amen? Lord, we thank you for these wonderful words that came right from you. And I pray that we would have ears to hear from you and not from man. And that you would change us by these words, God. Change us by the truth that they carry. That you love us and died for us. And brought peace between you and us and man to man. Let our light shine in this valley, I pray, Lord. Let us be candlesticks that are, that are protected, but that shine brightly here. And please save many people through our witness, God. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.